There's a cold silence that we don't dare speak. There's a wall between us and a river so deep. We keep pretending that there's nothing wrong. There's a code of silence and it can't go on. Hi folks, I am Alan Watt and this is Cutting Through the Matrix on the 28th of April 2010. For the newcomers, I suggest you look into cuttingthroughthematrix.com. Scroll down, bookmark the other sites I have up there. It's very important because even last night, the com site, uh, they decided, the, the provider decided to do a maintenance supposedly on it. I've never heard of them doing this at the, on these particular servers, but this happened last night. And if you had the other ones bookmarked, you could have got the show. Otherwise, you were kind of stuck. So always bookmark the alternate sites I have there, and you can always get the show if this happens again, or I get the other problems which I've had before too. And remember too, when you're in the site there, look at the products I have for sale, look at the books and the discs I have for sale. Uh, that helps me keep going along. I don't uh, get paid by advertisers. The ads on the show are paid by the advertisers directly to RBN for the airtime and for their staff and equipments, their bills and maintenance and all the rest of it and the transmission of the show. So it's up to you to keep me going. Support me by buying the products up for sale on the, on the cuttingthroughthematrix.com. And you can also donate as well. That will also help me tick over. I just tick over here and the expenses are high, believe you me. And, uh, Remember, from the U.S., most customers are from the U.S. Uh, you can use a personal check to Canada. That's acceptable. You can also use an international postal money order from your post office. Uh, you can send cash, uh, Western Union, MoneyGram, or once again, PayPal. You'll see the donation button. You can donate the amount for your purchase if you want to, send me a separate email with your name and address and the order, and I'll get it out to you. Same across the rest of the world, same idea, cash, MoneyGram, Western Union, or PayPal. That's up to you. Lots of folk get the disc burned and passed to them because they've gone off the Internet altogether. They play them on their CD players, and uh, they get them passed at meetings, the different talks I, I do. You can get in touch with me at Alan Watt, W-A-T-T, Site 41, Box 4, Estere, which is E-S-T-A-I-R-E, Ontario, Canada. And the postal code is P, as in Peter, the number 3, E for Elizabeth, the number 4, N for Nora, and the number 1, P3E4N1. Now, this New World Order is amazing because it's continuous. People are always asking, it's like they're looking for Armageddon, when's the final day? And I keep telling them, you're living through it your whole life's long. Uh, you're living through a script. Just uh, as the Department of Defense comes out with their projections of events which they see are definitely coming within the next 30 to 50 years, well, you see, they were already at it before we were born. Any of us were born. And they had this whole period worked out too, including the global agenda. And the time would come, they said, where eventually wars between nations would cease because technically there would be no nations. And even then, 50, 60 years ago, they said 
they would have terrorism would be the next form of warfare. As they moved into a totally controlled society, a lot of people wouldn't be too pleased about it. And that's really the phase we're almost at today. In fact, both systems, actually, national and international, work in conjunction together. They kind of overlap during this particular period that we are living through right now. And it truly is scripted. Uh, it's astonishing what turns up in the, the news years after certain events. Uh, one of the inter- interesting things came up about six months ago was that uh, Mr. Mr. Rockefeller went over to see the Prime Minister of the Soviet Union 15 years before the wall came down, and they told him the whole of Europe was integrating and Russia better get in on the acts. Back after this break with more. Alan Watts, and we're cutting through the matrix, just talking about how we're all constantly living through this new world order, and we have been for a long, long time. It was not something that was sprung upon us by surprise, because anybody can go into big sites like the Council on Foreign Relations, you can buy their old books, and realize that we're talking about this very system 50, 60, 70 years ago, not just talking about it, they had world meetings every year. And they had special think tanks and departments working on every project to do with society and the society that they wanted to bring into existence. And they also really uh, coordinated with all the other big foundations around them that also were engaged in specialized areas of society and the type of society they were going to create for the future. Uh, that's the, what's called the parallel government And I never forget that, even when I'm talking about politicians or reading something from the media, I never forget the fact that there is a parallel government, the real government, uh, that Carl Quigley talked about in his book, Tragedy and Hope. And his other book, you've got to read it too, it's the Anglo-American Establishment. And it it goes through the whole history of setting up the the idea, the groups that founded it, the idea of working towards a world governmental system and a specific type of world governmental system. Uh, governance is a sort of slightly different word from government. Government is the, is what is there, you see. And governance really is a, is a new type of uh, system. It's a system where you're ruled by expert departments and people. Divisions, you might say. That's what they mean by governance. Um, not just a single, uh, uh, building some in your capital, uh, city but it actually spread across the planet. Uh, special people, or especially trained people, who work in one particular department, but can, they can live all over the world and simply communicate with each other. Technically, they're, they're, they're internationalists. They don't have a country. They see the world as, uh, as, uh, as theirs, their global citizens. So much so that a lot of the members of the CFR get uh, global citizenship awards from the Rockefeller uh, Foundation. They award them every year. And some of the biggest players you'll ever see, including all your major newscasters, are actually uh, ordained, you might say, global citizens. Strange thing to hand out, isn't it? Um, Especially even before and during the Cold War, to hand out global citizenship awards uh, when supposedly there was no world government. 
how can you be a, a global citizen? Hmm? And uh, that's how they see themselves. However, they don't see uh, the world the, the way that we do. They see it in a scientific viewpoint or from a scientific viewpoint. They believe, being the experts, then they must create a post-democratic society. Technically, the parallel government has always uh, bypassed democracy and led the world, even during the supposed democratic period. But they claim that we're now post-democratic because in democracies you have too many conflicting and competing parties uh, going for power that nothing they say can get done. The Club of Rome actually wrote about that in one of their books. Uh, They called it the First Global Revolution. And... um, they said we're post-democratic. Uh, Carl Quigley, again, um, the historian for the Council on Foreign Relations, uh, talked about the same thing. He said the technocrats exist. Technocrats are appointees. They work behind the scenes. They're not responsible to the public for any of their actions. They have more power than presidents or prime ministers because the big banks, and yep, he did say that the big bankers are all part of this, a very essential part of this. He says the big banks um, uh, shield them, finance them, and ensure they can even get public funding for them for their big, big projects across the planet as they build this new integrated system. Uh, Maurice Strong is a technocrat. A Kissinger is a technocrat. Uh, so is a Brzezinski, a technocrat. They're always involved doing something for this world order. They never retire, and there's many, many, many more. They have them throughout the world in all countries. Uh, it's astonishing the, the amount of all the tie-ins, I should say, with the Council on Foreign Relations or the Royal Institute for International Affairs, which are really the same thing. But when you find that they also have the, the Rhodes Scholarships on the go. Now, Rhodes Scholarships have been on the go for over a 100 years, and their whole duty is to train people in Oxford University from all over the world to go back to their countries. They open doors for them and work within their own governments towards uh, world government. It's so interesting to me because you'll see them going into to their own parliaments or their congresses and uh, giving all the national speeches to get elected, etc., to stay in power, but actually they're already sworn to internationalism. And this part of it is kept out of the general media. You, you catch glimpses of it and so on. They will mention Rhodes Scholars. This won't explain what it actually means to you. But they have them all across every country in Europe. Uh, the U.S. government at one point a few years ago had 200 of them working within the higher bureaucracy in the federal government. And we don't elect bureaucrats either. That's how they also run the world. In fact, the bureaucrats in civil service are the only ones who truly know what their goals are. The politicians come and go. They're out for themselves. And and politicians have no expertise in any particular area generally once they get into government. Only the bureaucrats who've been there for years in each department know what their part of this agenda is. And they give the scripts and have the script writers for the politicians at front, for the minister of this or whatever. That's how it really works. So, once again, uh, it's, it's no big stretch to understand how the world truly is run. It's run uh, via bureaucracies, 
which in turn are controlled by parallel governments because the guys like the Maurice Strong have total access to bureaucracies in different countries via uh, the United Nations. The UN can appoint anybody to these countries and give them an open door right into their various bureaucracies, bypassing the politicians altogether. After all, what are you going to learn from a politician? Not much. It's interesting, too, that Winston Churchill talked about how they would control the direction of World War II. And he said, we'll take a leaf from Hitler's book. He said, you don't do it through the politicians because the British Parliament continued during World War II. He said, you do it through your bureaucracies. You must get them all on board with you, behind you. In other words, you reach kind of deals with the top bureaucrats in the high departments to make sure they'll be on board with you. And it's the same with the United Nations, too. We hear uh, things mentioned like the International Monetary Fund. Uh, Growing up, we think these are very official and natural organizations. That's the key to training people to accept things. Never question. You you hear them so often, you think they're, they're just natural. They're naturally there like gravity. They're naturally there like fruit trees. They're just natural. Well, there's nothing natural about them. They were set up by the same banking crew, International Monetary Fund, and its board of directors uh, that set up the United Nations because Quigley himself admitted, and he goes through the history of the setting up of the League of Nations that turned into the United Nations uh, in his own book, as I say, Tragedy and Hope, and his other one, The Anglo-American Establishment. It's on record that Rockefeller, for instance, said himself it's far preferable uh, that uh, bankers international bankers and intelligentsia, the intelligent ones, uh, rule the, the destiny of countries uh, rather than leaving it up to their own, uh, their own direction, basically, to the country's directions. And that really is what they do believe, a scientifically run, expert-led world system bypassing democracy, and they believe they should run this world uh, towards a planned society, that's why you're, you're, you've, you're, you've been taught, basically, that the human being is nothing more than another animal, and a lesser one at that, according to some of them. Uh, you've been taught to devalue life completely. In fact, we feast on horror movies and war movies and uh, action movies of blood and guts where faceless people are just blown away all the time, and we call that entertainment. We, uh, we watch wars occur across the world that we're all funding and supplying the troops for, and it doesn't bother most people at all. It's uh, over there somewhere, it's too vague for them, and it must be all right because, again, our holy government has authorized it. When the people truly lose interest in what their governments are up to, uh, you know you're conquered. There's been a very successful for the mind. The minds are conquered because it's only natural that people inquire all the time as to what your governments are truly, truly up to. The power they have is phenomenal through law and legislation and through the heavies they hire, and they have lots of heavies under different guises and uniforms and departments. They can cause a horror show in any country. We must never forget that. People always think of totalitarian regimes 
as being uniformed with the leader wearing a uniform on a podium, uh, yelling and screaming and so on. It doesn't happen like that in this modern age. You see, the fanatics wear suits and ties. And they go into your, 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 the trained place that you're trained to see them as your leaders. And they're again surrounded by your national symbols, whatever they happen to be. And you better listen to when, you, when they talk, even though the speeches are written for them, they're, they're exoteric and they're esoteric at the same time. Now, when you say something so slickly and easily that's kind of new to you or not, you don't quite understand, check into it deeply and find out the meaning because it's going to be very, very important to you. Back with more after these messages. I'm Alan Watson. This is Cutting Through the Matrix, just talking about the way things really are as opposed to how they're presented to you. And for most folk, of course, as you know yourselves, those who are awake, it's very hard to snap people uh, out of their uh, their conditioning. And they are conditioned, scientifically conditioned. Uh, many authors and participants in the conditioning process, many of those who helped draft up the methods and tested the methods in various schools over years, going back as far as the 1920s, wrote about it, people like Bertrand Russell and others. And they worked with Tavistock, and they worked with the, the British governmental system, and they worked with the, the Secret Service Network of Britain. And they really all worked towards this particular scientifically controlled society. Just yesterday, someone was telling me about some children in a U.S. school where six- and seven-year-olds come in with their little um, cell phones there, and they don't look up books anymore. They'll sit at their desk all day, and any questions they have, they just type it into their, their, their phone and get the answers. And it's, it's an odd thing, this teacher said, to see young children, such young children, all uh, transfixed on these tiny little screens, um, but what's noticeable, too, is that they have no memory. They don't, you don't need to remember something, you see, when you can get asked the same question a thousand times throughout your life, and you just have to punch up the question to find out what the answer is. So why bother remembering anything? And it reminds me of Skinner, when Skinner, the big behaviorist that's risen to an icon amongst the, the behavioral studies, he says to, if you want to change society, <clears throat> you simply change something in the environments of the target, basically the people being the target. That was true of radio for the beginning, because even the BBC was created as a propaganda arm of the British government using radio. And they used various techniques to try uh, experiments on the British populations. They found if they could give them a serial that would come on every day, maybe Monday to Friday, people literally would try and be in the house at a particular time to find out what happened from the previous day. A cliffhanger. They'd always leave you with a cliffhanger. They could alter people's behavior. And, of course, they used it for incredibly good and well-done propaganda. Television was introduced into the home and people stopped talking. When they did talk, they generally talked about what they just saw on television. 
uh, the parents stop talking to the children and vice versa. And that's what Skinner said. You just want to change something in their environment to change uh, the people themselves, their behavior. And that was his speciality, behaviorism, altering for the plan society or creating a generation that would grow up never knowing that there had been literally uh, scientifically controlled and um, modified, you might say. And now you have the cell phones and all the other gadgetry there. We live in an era where big governments who share the information with each other uh, monitor every single citizen on a, a vaster scale than any tyrant in the world could ever have dreamed of. And we're being taught that it's all quite normal. You know, people talked about the Soviet Union and Nazi Germany, and it was often said in various books at the time that when intrusion comes into the home, intrusion and the breaking of privacy and surveillance on the citizenry becomes normal, then then that's the worst kind of tyranny you can have. And yet we've been trained, very well trained, by experts to accept it all as quite normal. And a generation is definitely growing up. They're definitely growing up already uh, not caring about privacy at all. Uh, privacy is a foreign thing to them. They've been taught to share all their thoughts, all their ideas, all their activities on a, a kind of uh, open world di- uh, diary. And where did they get all this from? They got it all from their schools. They got it from uh, the various uh, free services that were put out for them. Free services. Nothing is for free. Your browser that's free isn't free. All these big things that you get for free are part of the military-industrial complex to get your information from you and to monitor you. And Facebook and all the other Gimmicks are put out there to trap people. Again, behaviorists have a big part in planning the society and guiding and running it. And they're completely involved and always have been involved in educational systems. That's the kind of world they're bringing in. A society where no one thinks about privacy. In fact, eventually you'll be called antisocial. And they'll create social disapproval against you if you are the oddball who says, you know, I like my privacy. Or they'll say, that's none of your business what I'm doing. Because again, totalitarian societies can only relax when every single person is monitored 24 hours a day and is completely predictable. Completely predictable. That's what they're bringing in, the the controlled society uh, using social disapproval for those who will not join it. You're the oddball. You could be dangerous. You never know what you'll do. And it's far, far worse than even that that I'm talking about right now. Back with more after these messages. You're listening to the Republic Broadcasting Network because you can handle the truth. 
Hi folks, this is Alan Watt and we're cutting through the matrix. You know, computer brain interfaces are all over the place now and it's an old, not just an idea, they were working on this a long time ago. I think Sweden was the first country to use prisoners, in fact, uh, to, um, to actually hook them directly into computers back in the 70s even. I remember reading it in the newspapers then. I'm sure other countries were doing the same thing. And the whole idea is not so that you can become kind of some kind of superman by interfacing. It really was to find out if you can control the individual by using the computer. And we see that happening today. You know, you can, you can, you can actually control a person by, by really, um, directing their Pavlovian responses to something, giving them a stimulus, in other words, and have them respond. We take all these kind of little stimuli for granted again. We get used to them. We think it's normal. When you're in your car, you're prompted to put on your seatbelt. That's a, that's a Pavlovian stimulus, you see. And there's many more types of stimulus out there too. If you use a computer, that's all you get is one, one little prompt after another. It guides you uh, across, uh, across a certain uh, amount of action and sequences to take to get what you think that you want, which might not be what you want, but it's definitely what those who made the computer and programmed it want you to do. So you're, you can be altered, your behavior is altered again by putting something into your environment that wasn't there before. The, the computer brain interface, as I say, it doesn't have to be hooked directly in. It can be wireless, and they've been working on, on that for years too, using animals, and I'm sure people too, along the way. You'll find in military um, declassified experiments, uh, they always declassify something at least 50 years uh, after an event. And no one cares then because another generation grows up. We don't care what's happened to previous people. It's kind of like uh, it's ancient history to us. And that's why they can declassify stuff. And they've done horror things, horror shows in the past on experiments, always on their own subjects. That raises no alarm uh, on the present uh, generation. And we find that the... The, the computers now uh, that they're working on supposedly can use uh, magnetic waves to, again, old technology going back to the Corbin helmet a long time ago. Uh, they use these waves to literally sense parts of your brain to see what's working. We know the Air Force, we used these for years too with pilots' helmets to try to coordinate their thoughts or their emotions and even muscle movements of their eyes with direction, target finding, that kind of thing. But it's way beyond that now too. They use these things in games. They sell them to children with helmets and they literally can sense, almost strobe the surface of the, the parietal lobes and um, interact with the human itself by anticipating through its program what the subject wants them to do. And it's going to go a lot, lot further than that. They talked in, um, in Microsoft, while they were making the helmet, another division of theirs was also working on the same kind of thing without a helmet, where they'd build in uh, the kind of sensor, the sensory frame around your screen of your computer, and that would literally uh, do the same thing as the helmet did without you having to wear anything. Now they're bringing out computers uh, that interact with you and, and uh, literally watch you. 
uh, your behavior. It will study your behavior because you will fit into a certain um, uh, system of behaviors, multiple behaviors that the computer is fed. And it tries to put you in different categories, you see. And eventually they'll ask you, how are you feeling, George? And uh, you'll talk to it. Now, these things are already here. Some programs are already out. They're they're putting them out now. And um, if you're slouching, it'll tell you you're slouching. Why are you slouching? Are you tense? Why are you tense? What's on your mind? It's just like how the computer that you saw in 2001, A Space Odyssey. Now, tie that in with last night's program where I talked about the coming new healthcare system in the U.S., where you're going to get basically uh, what you're going to pay for through your taxes will be um, advice from uh, doctors or maybe if they're avatars, who knows, that will come along too, uh, on the Internet. A massive project, already obviously designed, ready to go. They never mention these things that they want to do something. Uh, They always have it up and ready to go when they want to do it. That's when they mention it. They've already trained the public to to do with uh, nursing uh, stand-ins for doctors for lesser health care for quite a few years. Well, now you're you're going to get basically the same kind of thing, but it's via the Internet. They say it's in real time, and of course you must have a camera and all the rest of it to see the doctor, or perhaps, as I say, maybe even his avatar or or somebody who says he's a doctor. That's going to be that. Now, you tie that in. You tie that in with the computer's program that's observing you. Now, supposing it thinks you have a bit of stress there, that's automatically relayed to the health authorities. Now, supposing that program decides or sends off to them that it thinks you might be coming out with violent stress. What do you think is going to happen then? It's going to be a whole new form of policing. A whole new form of policing. We already have a type of this policing in some parts of the U.S. and elsewhere where social workers and informants in society uh, spy on each other, on the citizenry, I should say. Neighbors are taught that. And to report people who are behaving a bit oddly, and in comes this team of uh, uh, social workers, little little sort of SWAT teams of social workers and uh, accompanied by policemen, and they go into people's homes and start demanding answers to various questions. Now they can actually just monitor you on a daily basis by not just what, how you behave in front of the computer or what you're watching at, what sites you're looking at and how it's affecting you, but also by your email contents and all that kind of stuff. That will help train the public to be like the kind of character that, that uh, George Orwell puts in his book 1984, Winston. Winston's character was someone who was trained from youth to show no expression whatsoever. Never show uh, dilation of the pupils through fear or excitement. Never never show any um, expression when you hear any kind of information passed to you, even if it sounds absolutely crazy. Because those are dangerous things to have to show, because everything's on camera. 
And now you have computers, as I say, which can read those particular little, little signs. They're using them at airports. You, you all know that too, don't you? It was only a natural thing they would use it in your, your home computers as well. And they've made computers pretty well mandatory, haven't they? It was one of these things that came along and you say, well, you know, man's always adapted to science. And then they give you the examples of uh, how we got the horse and cart, you know. And then they go on to that too. Well, forget too that uh, most folk didn't have a horse or a cart. You had to have a, a pretty good money in the old days to have a horse in Europe. Or nobility. In some places you'd be arrested if you're on a horse, if they suspected you were not nobility. And then they'll say, well, then we had the ships. Well, not everybody could afford to go on a ship either. So not everybody's life was changed by it directly. And then they had the steam engine and so on, and that brought uh, uh, a lot of little towns along in its wake. But the folk didn't sit there and talk about the railways all day long. They didn't go and sit in the tracks all day long. They give you the, the computer after TV, which got you ready for it, and you can sit for hours, maybe the whole darn day on it. Complete behavior alteration. And you take it all for granted. But not only that, they make it almost a pro- In fact, it's really now a priority to have one. And shortly will be when you go completely cashless. Because everything that you need, and even your bank account, is basically weaponized. And by that I mean it can be used as a weapon against you. And you have no terms to dictate anything you'll notice in this world. Any agreement you make with anybody out there, any any uh, bank or whatever, even your internet service provider and all of this kind of stuff, you read all the contents, look at the programs you download and agree to, agree to, agree to. It may vary uh, according to the owners, blah, blah, blah. You have no rights whatsoever. And the same thing goes when they go cashless and you have to have a bank account. And you must use all your... your um, your bank access, purchasing, so on, via, via the bank. Most folk already do it today already with their cards. So they're already trained to do it. You already stand back from society and study society. It's not difficult at all. You must look at what you're looking at without taking it for granted. I remember when I first saw people I generally never went into uh, big stores and even big grocery stores. And when I first saw people one after another in line taking out their card and swiping it through, I I was really kind of shocked to to see it. They were doing it as they do it every day. To me, that was a foreign thing to to, to see. As though they were all trained to do it. That's no different than swiping your hand past the machine and that's a palm print or whatever will be you and it's drawn right off that palm print. See, you've been trained bit by bit, right down to, to the, to the hand to use it. Swipe it past this, swipe it past that. And accept and adapt and accept and adapt without question. Computers, you know, computers, uh, I've always said this too, they could have given you the final version of the computer before they go into the cloud, and that's how it's it's working out to be. 
the computers that are out now will be the last versions of their type before the cloud comes totally, completely uh, in and takes over everything. They could have given you the final uh, high-speed version that you're buying today at the very beginning, 15, 20 years ago, because they could have done it then. They had the ability. They had the technology to do it. They, don't, they were already giving it to very high uh, sections of the CIA, and the NSA had all that too. They were not sitting with big tape machines like they love to show you in the old movies. But they dish it out piece by piece to train you along the way that you're just gradually evolving along a certain path. If they gave you the latest thing at the very beginning, you'd have been stunned and shocked. Especially if they told you that all your data was going to be collected and gathered for every single thing that you did on that computer. Now they give you piece by piece. And then six months later, you tell you, well, it's kind of obsolete. It's a bit faster now. And all the companies churn out the same faster stuff at the same time. And no one says, isn't that weird if they're all competing? How come they're always out with the same stuff at the same time? Do you really think all these separate companies are really there to compete with each other? All these big companies, big electronic, it's like General Electric. You think it's there to make nice light bulbs for you? I can remember when they showed you the, the cannon, uh, the, the rotary cannon that the General Electric had created because its biggest parts for the military industrial complex, like all of their, all of these electronic companies are. And the cannon fired so many rounds per minute, you didn't hear the individual shots, you just heard this hum. The article I read a couple of years ago where Sony in Japan, Sony gives you nice stereo and all that, yep, uh, had interfaced uh, silicon chips with, com- with the human brain tissue and had successfully managed to transmit messages. But you thought they were there to give you good audio, right? You know, the CIA have put up more real companies out there than any possible competitor could even try to get into being. The idea being that you don't want competitors. If you're directing the the course of history and you've already decided during the Cold War that those with the highest sciences will win the war, you don't share technology. You don't allow technology to spring out on its own independently and come out with some kind of new system that's not under your control and that might help free the people even unintentionally, you would not allow it to happen. Therefore, you create the real companies and you fund them into existence. Who do you think funded Japan to be the leader in electronics in the world after World War II? Go into the writings of Hopkins that was sent over to design and set up and install the new Japanese system on behalf of the U.S. All those companies were funded via the Japanese government, which was just a puppet government of the U.S. They funded those corporations into existence and directed where they were going. And it's no different in the States. No different at all. It's like the chip they were giving to the the, the youngsters, the teenagers in the Badger nightclubs. Put the chip in the arm and charge it with your cash 
and you could withdraw and withdraw without having to use cash. Very trendy, you know. Get all the good gals at these clubs, they made sure there was lots of them. Again, how do you get your victim? What does the creature have in common? They're young, they're horny, the, the best girls are here. That's what you do. They study us like any prey. They're the predator, we're the prey. We're not difficult to understand. And then you find the director of it happened to be uh, just left the NSA, the National Security Agency. What a coincidence. There are no coincidences like this, folks. None whatsoever. The private organizations that ran the Cold War, the companies, are the well-known brands that you hear of today. They're still there. And their sideline is supplying you with irons for your, your clothing and stuff like that. The scientifically controlled society is talked about by Bertrand Russell in the book The Impact of Science on Society. He talks about the necessity to, to first train the trainers. You train the teachers. You must have, if you want to send, send out, send out, or set out advocates for a particular new system of way of doing things, you've got to make them true believers. They don't have to know the truth. It's like evangelists. You must create good evangelists. Taught how to get converts. And that's how they would enter the educational system. And that's why they created uh, UNESCO. And the, and the International Educational Association. Back with more after these messages. This is Alan Watt, and we're cutting through the matrix. There's an article here from the Associated Press, and it's October 2007. You're hearing now about the Internet of Things and how everything will communicate with everything else. This is all about that, but it's three years ago. It says, you might wear computing's next wave. In Boston, from clothes riddled with sensors to name tags that detect our moods. Name tags that detect our moods, folks. Mm Mm-hmm. Computing's next wave could unleash small devices that increasingly augment everyday activities with digital intelligence. That was the predominant vision at a conference on wearable computing held this week in Boston, where researchers showed off prototypes and discussed ideas. Some attendees took wearable computing to its extreme, donning cyborg-like miniaturized displays attached to eyepieces, but most of what was on exhibition seemed much closer to jumping into a mainstream commercial product. For example, researchers from the Swiss Federal Institute of Technology showed off stretchable thread-like sensors that can be woven into shirts to detect their wearer's posture. People with back pain or injuries could be prompted on a PC or a mobile device to straighten up pronto. What else it could do, eh? Stephanie Burgard of Germany's University of Bremen displayed a shoeborne sensor whose tiny accelerators perform electronic dead reckoning, providing real-time location uh, tracking in places satellites uh, navigation systems either can't reach or can't describe with precision. 
For now, the censor has to be placed or held in place by the shoelaces, but Beauregard expects a version that can fit inside a boot heel could be a year away. What's done already since then? It's going, it's really all going in one direction as to control you, even your posture. Well, that will also mean your mood as well, I'm sure. That's coming. That's all coming for this nice, safe world they're talking about. And meanwhile, too, it's incredible how countries that that have got the IMF already going over their books. And by the way, they've already been over the books of the U.S. They're in there right now. They're in Britain right now, too. They've already gone over and audited them. But they've got all this cash to spend on and all the prisons and, and the prison-like materials they're setting up for you all over the place. You understand you don't have to be behind bars to be in a prison. Being monitored 24 hours a day means you're a prisoner. It means you've got a watcher, a jailer watching you. It's all in how you perceive things, isn't it? Or how you've been taught not to perceive things. High-tech speed cameras which use satellites to track the motorists on secret trial in Britain. It's to go, it's to go nationwide, then worldwide. April the 20th, speed cameras which communicate with each other by satellite are being secretly tested on British roads. The high-tech devices can follow drivers' progress for miles to calculate whether they have broken the speed limits. Combining number plate recognition technology with global positioning satellites, they can be set up in a network to monitor tens of thousands of cars over huge areas for the smallest breach of the law. Known as Speed Spike, the system uses similar methods of recognition as the cameras which enforce the congestion charge in London and allow two cameras to talk to each other if a vehicle appears to have travelled too far in too short a space of time. After a covert national trial, covert, this is supposedly democracy, they have covert trials and spy stuff on the British public. And what did the British public do? Nothing. Apathy, apathy. We must create apathy, says Bertrand Russell, but we're bringing through the totalitarian phase of this, and we're here now. And it isn't just Britain. From Hamish myself from Ontario, Canada, it's good night to me, your God, or your gods go with you.